From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The CDC reported recently that after decades of increases, newly diagnosed cases of diabetes have actually declined. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is the number of new cases is still four times what it was in 1980. We'll have the latest on preventing and treating diabetes. comes down to, is it a part-time job? I mean, are you a diabetic or are you a person who has diabetes? I think the fundamental shift is, you didn't raise your hand and say, gee whiz, I'd like to have diabetes. So, yeah, it is more complicated. As I say, you didn't volunteer for this, but you can take care of yourself. Also on the program, recently there have been conflicting studies about calcium's effectiveness in promoting bone health. We'll hear from an expert. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, in a study published recently in the Journal of the American Medical Association, researchers estimated that about half of all adults in the United States, that's 50%, either have type 2 diabetes or what's called pre-diabetes. They're a setup to get it. This study is the latest in a series of studies that show a steady rise in the incidence of diabetes in this country. It's a trend that worries both those who are providing health care and those who pay for it. Here to talk about the epidemic of diabetes in this country and what can be done about it, Dr. Robert Rizza. Dr. Rizza is an endocrinologist and diabetes specialist at Mayo Clinic. He is also a past president of the American Diabetes Association. Welcome to the program, Dr. Rizza. Thank nice you very much. Glad to be here. You know, every new study seems to indicate that this problem, diabetes, is getting worse, not better. Yeah, that's tragic, isn't it? And, of course, the, the dilemma has been that you and I and, and most folks in, you know, in, in the country understand what's going on. The thing that's causing this is sedentary lifestyle you know, and gaining weight. We, we haven't changed our genes, but you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago, this was a relatively uncommon disease. But now what's happening is all of us just have gained weight. We're just sedentary and we're getting this disease. And that's a problem. So you're saying it's not so much what we're eating, but the lack of movement that it's, we're... And no, it's both. Okay. I mean, basically, none of us violate the thaws. <laughs> I can't try it. Laws of thermodynamics. My <laughs> wife hates me when I say this. <laughs> you know, so what's happening is, is that we're, we're either eating the same and doing less, so we're gaining weight, you know, or, or we're eating more very high-density calorie foods. And even though we're active, we're not nearly enough active enough to burn this. And it's that balance which is basically resulting in the slow increase in weight over years. Gain one, two, four, five pounds a year over 20 years, and then you get diabetes. So tell us the difference, and if there is an increase in both types. We've got type 1 and type 2. Are both of them increasing, or is it just type yeah, 2? I mean, that's an extremely important point, because what I was saying before applies to type 2. turns out to type 1, which is where the body's immune system destroys the insulin screening cells, and it's got nothing to do with gaining weight. It's nothing to do with, you know, with obesity. That also is increasing. That's increased several fold, not only in the United States, but around the world. And it's not entirely clear why that's happening. It may be happening because some of the things we used to be exposed to when we were young, germs and, you know, things that weren't so clean may actually be protecting us. Whereas now we're not, our immune system is now attacking our insulin screening cells. Nobody really knows why, but that's one of the hypotheses. Well, that's but interesting. But it is increasing. It? Yeah. So type 1 is, are you born with type 1? It's a congenital? No. So type 1, what happens is that you and I, when we're born, we have a certain number of insulin-secreting cells. In some people, their immune system starts forming antibodies, which are the things that kill the immune cells. 
in fact, identical twins may both form antibodies, but one twin will go on to kill their cells, and the other twin with the antibodies. Same genes will not. So the point is we don't really know what's happening, but this is something that occurs after you're born. It can happen when you're 10. It can happen when you're 90. So that's why it's no longer called juvenile onset diabetes because it can happen any time. You know, young people and adults. Just so people, a point of clarification, the insulin-secreting cells are the ones that keep our blood sugar under right. control. The insulin-secreting cells secrete the hormone called insulin, and the insulin is the hormone that regulates blood glucose. Absolutely correct. And what happens in type 2 diabetes, adult-onset diabetes? You've still got the, the insulin-secreting cells, but you don't have enough? Yeah, the combination of both is that you don't have enough because the secreting cells can't secrete enough to keep up for the greater need when you're bigger, when you're heavier, when you're sedentary. But the other thing that happens, that when the blood sugars start to rise pre-diabetes, like you both mentioned in diabetes itself, the insulin secreting cells start dying. So it's a double problem. They're straining, but they can't keep up because you're big, you're heavy. But now they're dying faster and you run out of them. Why do they die? Don't know. If we knew that. <laughs> but that's an important thing. Yeah. See, if, if you can understand why they're dying, you could cure this disease. But... By losing weight, by getting yourself more active, that brings the blood sugars down, and that seems to preserve, we call it beta cells, these are the insulin preserve them. So in essence, not only are you doing is reversing this disease and getting rid of it, but also what you might do is this, you know, you might put it off another 20 years, but that's why it's this key interaction of weight, activity, and secretion. When you're looking at the pre-diabetes right. notion, right. That, that at some point you are going to become diabetic with the situation that you have Maybe you're just pushing that off. Is that what you're saying? I am, but kind of, sort of, like most things in medicine. <laughs> See, what's happening is is that everybody's body secretes a certain amount of insulin. When you develop diabetes, your body's not secreted enough insulin. If by losing weight, being active, you don't need as much insulin, now your sugars are normal. But if your pancreas were to keep losing insulin secretion over years, you could still develop diabetes, but you're going to decrease your odds. You know, and it may, you may get diabetes when you're 90, but you get hit by a truck when you're 86, so it doesn't matter. But that's this fundamental thing about trying to delay, you know, and hopefully prevent this disease. But, but why does it matter? What happens when your blood uh, glucose is too high for too long? Well, the problem, of course, is that it's not just your sugars are high, but it's the number one cause of blindness, kidney disease in adults, amputations, because sugar poisons the body. Normal blood sugars, you're fine. High blood sugars, it sticks and does all kinds of things you just don't want to have happen. But that's the important part of diabetes. If you take care of it and keep your blood sugars normal and keep your blood pressure normal and your cholesterol normal by taking statins, they're called, you can prevent these problems. Of course, the best thing of all is don't get diabetes in the first place Mm because then you're not taking all these things. But it is clearly, that's why it's so important to the folks listening to this, it's it's not a matter of you get diabetes, it's all over. If you got diabetes, you take care of it, you're fine. That's why it's so important to know you have this disease and to take care of it. And it doesn't matter whether it's type 1 or type 2, correct? If you keep your blood sugar under control, you can avoid all the complications. That's not quite true. You, I mean, you can't avoid them all because for some reason, we don't know, some people still have problems, but the vast majority, it just is much more difficult to keep your blood sugars under control when you have type 1 because you have to be taking insulin multiple times a day. I mean, it's not easy. Yeah, but it is true. If you keep this A1C down, that's the measure, this chronic measure of diabetes, then the chances of bad things happening are dramatically reduced. So you can check the the blood sugar, and that'll tell you that if the glucose is too high. But explain what the A1C is. What happens is that when they draw my blood, you know, they draw our blood, our blood's red, because we are oxygen binds to hemoglobin. It turns out just by chance alone, glucose sticks to the hemoglobin. It's a non-enzymatic reaction. We doctors are bright groups. We call it glucose hemoglobin. That's called glycohemoglobin and it sticks to the A1C molecule. And the reason that matters, hemoglobin is a protein. 
So the glucose is sticking to the hemoglobin in your bloodstream. It's also sticking to the proteins in your eyes, your kidneys, and your heart. So it's a window to the damage that's being done. So by keeping this A1C down where it is, it knows that you're keeping your, your heart, your kidneys, and your brain safe. Wow. And what is pre-diabetes, the window is opening? No, absolutely right. What, what does it mean, diabetes? Well, you have diabetes if your blood sugars are 126 milligrams per DL or over. And you don't have it if your blood sugar is 125 milligrams. That's obviously pretty silly, you know, the difference between 125. And that was because, you know, the, the experts, and actually I'm the one person that wrote the report for the people. You know, their, their <laughs> we data have the was, true experts. But yeah. the data was showing that that's about where you just said, where you start seeing this increase in eye disease. You know, and, and so with a lot of consideration, that was considered the number. But what happens when your blood sugars are 125, 110, 115, that already says your pancreas is not screened up. insulin. With normal blood sugars, you're 80 to 100. So that's a big red flag saying that your pancreas is running out of gas. Frankly, you don't want to wait till you right. get to this higher number. Dr. Robert Rizza, diabetes specialist at the Mayo Clinic. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk to Dr. Rizza about the treatment of diabetes, the most important part, prevention, plus myth or matter of fact. Yeah, myth or matter of fact, diabetes is irreversible. Once you've been diagnosed, you'll always have it. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is diabetes specialist. He's an endocrinologist and former president of the American Diabetes Association, Dr. Robert Rizza. Myth or matter of fact? Diabetes is irreversible. Once you got it, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> and like everything, it, I mean, it depends. It depends. Yeah. I knew it. No, no. So what it means is that, as I was saying earlier, if your blood sugar is 126 or higher milligrams per DL, you have diabetes. But if you were to lose weight, become fit, and that doesn't mean climbing Mount Everest or running marathon. It just means walking each day. You lose weight. Your pancreas has enough insulin for the smaller and better you. Now your blood sugars are down to 100. You don't have the definition of diabetes. You're normal. Blood sugars are perfectly normal. But you still got the problem with your pancreas secreting insulin. So if you were to decide to start running on a sprained ankle again, you'd hurt it. If you started to get, become overweight again, you'd hurt your pancreas again. So, yeah, your diabetes went away, and you stay lean, you might not ever get it. But but if you go back, you have the same problem all over again. What is metabolic syndrome? Uh, well, metabolic syndrome is a name. And, and, and metabolic syndrome is one of these things where if your blood sugars are a little bit high but you don't have diabetes, if you're overweight, if your blood pressure is high, your triglycerides are high, and then maybe C-reactive peptide, you don't know these terms because doctors keep clumping these things together. <laughs> They all, they all go together. They all have to do with being overweight. So some group of folks decide it would be nice to put a name upon it. In fact, it's defined differently. depends on what room you happen to be in. But just think of it this way, is that if you're overweight, your sugars are high, your triglycerides are high, which your blood fats are high, you know, and then you've got your blood pressure is high. That's, that's what they're talking about. Now, let's talk a little bit about uh, treatment for the uh, – and let's start with type 1 because these are the people who don't have any insulin-secreting insulin cells, so they have to have an ins insulin to keep their blood pressure Correct. under control. Blood, blood glucose under control. Blood glucose, sorry. But they should keep their blood pressure too. It's a good idea. <laughs> and their cholesterol. And their cholesterol. Okay, so we've known uh, forever that you, you have to take insulin, and it used to be that uh, patients with type 1 diabetes had to inject themselves with insulin, but now – you have, what, insulin pumps, or how is it different and how is it better? Well, the way it's, it's, it's better and different is that we, being the medical profession, understand how the insulin is supposed to be given. So what happens is when you don't have diabetes, every time you eat, your pancreas squirts out insulin, but it squirts out the right amount of insulin. 
So now they're short-acting insulins that by taking a shot before the meal, and, and you have to do this properly, you can adjust this so the amount of insulin covers the food that you're eating rather than eating to try to cover the insulin. So you take squirts of short-acting insulin as an injection with breakfast, with lunch, or supper. But also we know that while you're sleeping, your body needs a certain amount of insulin called basal insulin to keep the body in balance. It regulates how much sugar is coming out of the liver. The liver is a machine. So what you do is you take a shot of insulin before breakfast, lunch, or supper, whatever you're eating, you know, to cover the food that's coming in, and then you balance it out. All a pump is is a $7,000 syringe. So what it's doing is it's giving a it, – the pump squirts insulin, the, same, the exact same insulin, with breakfast, lunch, and supper, just like a shot. But what it does, it continuously infuses this insulin, and that's, it, that's a more – for some people, but not everybody, that can produce a little more stable level than a shot of a long-acting insulin, which is designed to also be very long-acting. And pumps are a little bit better, but, but some folks, there's no difference in doing it right. But the critical thing right now – is learning how to take the right amount of insulin for your meals and during the nighttime. As we develop, and that's happening, so-called closed-loop pumps, where the you can measure the blood sugar by putting a needle in your skin or doing something else fancy in your you know tears, or because a lot of folks are working on this, and then could tell the pump how much to infuse. That's a game changer mm-hmm. because all of a sudden now you're no longer worried about how much you have to insulin you take by pricking your finger and then trying to guess what you need. The pump itself changes with the sugar. That is not yet available. But there are research studies, including here, where folks are working on making that a reality. Wow. So it's easier than it used to be, but still not a piece of cake. It's still difficult for a, some a part, of the type 1 like diabetes. Sounds like a part-time job, yeah. really, to manage your diabetes. Well, it is not easy. I think that that's easy, maybe easier is ready. And it's not, you know, but I would suggest to you, and this is really the critical thing, is that it comes down to, is it a part-time job? I mean, are you a diabetic or are you a person who has diabetes? And I think the fundamental shift is, you know, you know, you or I or whoever has it is a person who has diabetes. You didn't raise your hand and say, gee whiz, I'd like to have diabetes. But by doing this right, I mean, checking your blood sugar four times a day, that doesn't take long. You don't want to sh- – I mean, who wants to give themselves shots? But if you're taking a shot before each meal, they have all these cute little things that look like pens. You know, they can't tell if you have an ink pen or a needle. That's all it takes. So, yeah, it is more complicated. As I say, you didn't volunteer for this, but you can take care of yourself. All right, type 2 diabetes, the so-called adult-onset diabetes. Uh, the person is overweight, um, they're not exercising enough, and, and you may encourage them to do those things, but their blood sugar still isn't under control. What do you have for them? So but the first thing is the reason it's no longer called you know, adult, as you point out, is type 2, is because children get this, overweight children, you know, 8, 10, 15 years. And that's because I say, it's this, remember I said earlier, it's the imbalance between how much you're secreting versus you need. That's why it's type 2, not adult, because okay. any, any age yeah. gets it. So what you would do with this is that basically there are various pills that help the pancreas secrete more insulin. And there are different ways that happens, some of which uses hormones that are natural in your body, some of which uses different chemicals. There are various pills that regulate how much glucose the liver is producing. There are various pills that what, regulate how much glucose turns out the kidney can get rid of and can help getting rid of it. So these, these, without getting into the details, by working with your doctor, she or he can help put these together in such a way that's suitable for your body but gets this hemoglobin A1C down where it needs to be. Is, and ultimately, excuse me, if mm-hmm. ultimately if the pills don't work, because people type 2 also run of insulin, then they can show you to use insulin properly. Is, is there a hereditary piece more for type 2 or for type 1 or for both? Well, for both, but it's more for type 2, which is a bit ironical. You know, that it turns out the type 2 is, without getting into the details, it's very hereditary. So is type 1, but not as much, which gives you some clue also is what must be going on here. You know, why, why is something happening with type 1 
you know, it seems to be so much more, you know, predisposition, but environment, whereas type 2 seems to be a very strong genetic background, but also environment. So we've got risk for risk factors. We've got obesity, uh, sedentary lifestyle, heredity, age. I mean, this is more common as you as you age, yep, too. Yep. And anything else, ethnicity? There is. I mean, and again, you know, Tom, as you're pointing out, you're well aware it's certain parts, certain folks in different parts of the world are much more vulnerable to this disease. We don't really know why, and that obviously is this interaction between the environment. So folks that, you know, his, you know, Hispanic origin, African-American origin, people particularly in the Middle East and, you know, in places like China, India, this is a, this is a massive epidemic going on in India and China as people are getting weight. And they seem to be more predisposed for a given body weight than people are perhaps of, of, of Caucasian background. So there are no question that ethnicity is, is, a, is a factor. I know that you're obviously interested in the problem of obesity because there's a direct relationship with the development of diabetes. What, what can we do about this problem? It's hard. I mean, if, if it weren't hard, people would, everybody would be lean. But see, what you can do is that, is that you know, I, if you go back, you know, to the, the uh, paradigm of Alcohol Anonymous, you know, this whole business, I've always liked this. Mm-hmm. You know, not that I'm advocating being an alcoholic, but, you know, the <laughs> idea is one step at a time. And so with, with, with folks that are overweight, you know, it's just today, just today. Today, you know, I'm going to work on what I eat today. And the other thing about it is we talk about metabolic healthy versus unhealthy obesity, and that's a bit of an issue whether that exists. But if I am fit and I'm overweight, I actually have a lower risk of all these bad things happening if I'm lean than I'm not fit. So it turns out that the idea of being fit is swamps, you know, probably swamps many other things. And so we, we talk about obesity, but don't lose fact, sight of the fact that by just being fit, and that means just walking. Walking, this doesn't mean running up down, you know, mountains. So if, if you're overweight, you can certainly do that. 30, 45 minutes a day, six to seven days a week, every, it's part of your life. I'd rather be fit than take pills. You know, I mean, but that's the main thing sure. you can do is calories and be fit. Well, hopefully someday we'll solve this problem. Absolutely. It's always so good to have you here, and you make everything so clear and so easy to understand about diabetes. Dr. Robert Rizza. Thank you very much. Dr. Robert Rizza, an endocrinologist at Mayo Clinic and former president of the American Diabetes Association. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, it's long been thought that calcium was key to maintaining bone health and protecting against osteoporosis. But lately, there have been some conflicting studies about calcium's effectiveness. We'll sort it all out with our experts. And forecasters say we can expect an El Nino winter, which means warmer weather for some, colder weathers for others. We'll hear from an emergency medicine specialist about how to prepare for when the weather outside is frightful. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email to Mayo Clinic Radio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Mmm, what makes holiday food so delicious? Well, for one thing, salt. New York City became the first in the nation to require chain restaurants to post an image of a salt shaker next to menu items that contain a high level of sodium. It's part of a national initiative to prevent heart disease by reducing salt in packaged foods and restaurants. But why is too much salt bad for our health? And how do we cut back when it's in so much food? Monitoring salt intake can be tricky, especially going into the holidays. 
Salt, unfortunately, will help absorb fluid, absorb water, and it keeps it in your body. Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Stephen Kopetsky says sodium can cause issues for people with high blood pressure and heart failure. Where their heart fails to pump adequately to meet the body's demands. So if you then overload the heart with more fluid and more salt, it has a harder time pumping. People with kidney disease should watch salt too. So, if you're on a low-salt diet, the American Heart Association recommends your daily intake be less than 1,500 milligrams. That's a little less than three-quarters of a teaspoon. Regular intake is 2,300 milligrams, or just under one full teaspoon. And how do you handle big meals when you don't know how much salt is in the food? Well, if it tastes salty, don't eat too much. And in other news, Mayo Clinic researchers have discovered a series of proteins that could be diagnostic markers to identify bipolar 1 disorder. If this discovery sample can be validated through replications, these markers may help as a diagnostic tool for psychiatrists treating mood disorders. The findings appear in the journal Translational Psychiatry. Psychiatrist Dr. Mark Fry says the potential of having a biological test to help accurately diagnose bipolar disorder would make a huge difference to medical practice. He says it would then help clinicians to choose the most appropriate treatment for hard-to-diagnose individuals. Up to now, psychiatrists have relied on observed symptoms and patient assessments based on interviews. For more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The debate over the value of calcium intake and bone health took another turn recently with a study, this time published in the British Medical Journal. Now, that study, which analyzed data from numerous controlled trials, found that, believe it or not, there was no evidence that increasing calcium intake from dietary sources actually prevents fractures. And the study also concluded that any evidence that calcium supplements prevent fractures is weak and inconsistent. Mm, it's there like you a go. Soap opera. <laughs> For decades, people, especially women in their postmenopausal years, have been taking calcium, hoping to reduce their risk of breaking bones. But this, and another recent study showing no advantage to taking calcium to reduce the risk of osteoporosis, has left some doctors and certainly their patients scratching their heads. Well, here to help us sort it all out is Mayo Clinic endocrinologist and osteoporosis expert, Dr. Bart Clark. Welcome to the program, Dr. Clark. Good to have you. Thank you, Tom. So for years, you and your colleagues have been sitting here on this program telling us that women ought to be taking a calcium supplement. We even talked about all the different kinds that are available and which one was best and also to throw in a little vitamin D so we'd make sure that the calcium got absorbed and you do all that and it will help prevent osteoporosis and fractures. Was that bad, useless advice? So in retrospect, the short answer is, is no. And even with this new study and the other study that you mentioned, the controversy continues. <laughs> I'll tell you that just this week, there was another study published, a meta-analysis like the one that was published in the Brit British Medical Journal, showing just the opposite findings of benefit. Hmm. Oh, wow. So this is getting confusing, isn't it? Well, it's like many things in medicine. Different studies show different results. It's never clear. Is it the trial populations that were investigated? Is it the methods that were used to collect the data? Um, a lot of things affect the outcome of these meta-analyses. Now, the meta-analysis is supposed to be more accurate than any single study because you're putting together the results of many studies, some of which might show benefit, some of which might show no benefit, but at the end, you'll get an idea as to whether the uh, treatment uh, recommended is actually working or not. 
what I'll tell you is that in the calcium area, current consensus is that calcium by itself probably does not prevent fractures, and it may cause harm in the sense that it might increase cardiovascular risk, which was another finding of this British Medical Journal study. So heart failure or heart attack and stroke, you can increase your risk for that? Mostly coronary artery disease and heart attack. So vascular calcification, the feeling is that if you take too much, it might go into your blood vessels, not into your bones, and therefore lead to outcomes that you don't want to see. The consensus is that if you take calcium without vitamin D, you may not get the benefit for fracture reduction. But other studies looking at people who take calcium and vitamin D together, which is how this is normally recommended for our osteoporotic patients, there is benefit for fracture reduction and no increased risk of cardiovascular outcomes. And you take the vitamin D with it to make sure that the calcium gets absorbed? Either with it or you know, during the same day, you're going to take a dose of vitamin D plus a dose of calcium. Whether you take it simultaneously or not doesn't matter. And does it matter if it's that you're getting calcium from your food or is this strictly supplements? Yeah. So the concern about cardiovascular risk mostly comes from supplements only. The dietary calcium is thought to be less um, problematic in that sense. And there's no study that shows in the normal amounts that people would eat in their diet any risk. So it is really the calcium tablets that seems to be the cardiovascular risk. In terms of the benefit, the fracture reduction, it's also true that dietary calcium doesn't seem to have by itself a fracture reduction benefit as opposed to the supplemental calcium. And as a side note, uh, dairy would be one of the ways that you get your calcium. But what are other foods that have calcium if people have a hard time with dairy? All right. So a lot of foods have some amount of calcium in them, but they're not normally talked about or recommended as a big source because the amounts that are in them are relatively low. But other foods beside dairy, if a person can't take dairy because of lactose intolerance or taste preference or whatever, um, there's other sources that you can get calcium from, some of which is supplemented. So fruit juices, for example, are supplemented with almost as much calcium as what milk has. You have to read the label. But orange juice, for example, has virtually as much calcium in it as does a glass of milk for the same volume. So that's a good source if you like orange juice or citrus juices anyway. Certain green vegetables, so things like broccoli, spinach, Brussels sprouts, and kale have a fair amount of calcium in them as well, almost as much as what a cup of yogurt does. Hmm. So depending on what you like to eat, and other foods also now are supplemented, such as cereals and breads and other things. So you have to look at labels, but between what you eat normally on average, given some day-to-day variation in the diet, the goal is to try to achieve a certain amount of calcium intake, which has been set by the Institute of Medicine, still not changed since this most recent study has come out, with a certain amount of vitamin D. And the thought is that together they are what then reduces fractures. All right, bottom line. Who ought to be taking calcium? How much? Uh, and um, are there certain people who shouldn't be taking it? All right. So those answers would be divide, or in response to what the Institute of Medicine report recommended in 2011 based on the best data available. All of us need a certain amount of calcium intake, whether it's through our diet completely or diet plus supplement. The target for this generally for adults would be for men and women under 50, a total of 1,000 milligrams of calcium intake per day through whatever source, diet or supplement or both. And then for women above 50, it goes up to 1,200 milligrams. For men, all the way then up to 70, it stays at 1,000 milligrams, but at age 70, it goes up to 1,200 milligrams. So by age 70, everybody should be getting about 1,200 milligrams per day through diet or supplements or both. All right, and if you're not getting it through your diet, then you should take a supplement. And what kind do you prefer? 
Yeah. So which type? Yeah. If you don't want to modify your diet, which for many of us is hard to do, or the things that have calcium in them, you're not supposed to take either because of cholesterol and other issues. You can take a supplement, but the supplement recommended is typically in the range of about five or six hundred milligrams once a day, because diet on average in North America anyway has about five or six hundred milligrams of calcium, you know, per day with day-to-day variation accounted for. So if you took about roughly half the amount you need per day as one supplement, one five or 600 milligram calcium tablet, that would meet the need. Now, this is for everybody. That's not just for people who have a history of osteoporosis, et cetera. This is for everybody. This is recommended to maintain bone health in healthy people who don't have osteoporosis. It's also the same amounts recommended for the osteoporotic population. And how do you know if you have osteoporosis? It's a different story, right? That's a very good question. Um, The big issue is if you have low trauma fractures, that would be a tip-off that you might have weakening of the bones. If you don't ever have a fracture, by age 70 for men or age 65 for women, a bone density test should be done to find out how strong your bones are. And that's routine, and that's called a DEXA scan. That's a DEXA scan. And that will tell you if you uh, are a setup for osteoporosis, pre-osteoporosis, or osteopenia, as you call it, or if you have osteoporosis, then things might be different, right? Right. I mean, in terms of medications or what you would need to do. That's right. So if you have osteoporosis, even if you've never broken a bone so far, and you're taking good calcium and vitamin D for the amounts that we just mentioned, then the consideration is perhaps medication in some cases, other cases not. All right, so don't believe everything you read until you talk to your Mayo Clinic doctor. <laughs> Dr. Bart Clark, endocrinologist, osteoporosis expert, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Tom. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, the official start of winter is just around the corner. We'll have some tips on protecting yourself from things like frostbite and hypothermia. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Cold weather. It's becoming the norm across much of the country as we head into the winter months, although winter sort of drug its feet coming into Minnesota. It's fine by me. That's a good thing. Many people find cold weather invigorating. Are you kidding me? That's me. I love it. That's why (laughs) I live here. Really? Yes. All right. And they enjoy, I suppose you do too, being outdoors in the winter. They're skating, they're sledding, they're snowmobiling, they're skiing. skiing. You run outside? Snowshoeing, yes. And you know, for others, a warm fire, a cup of hot cocoa, and a good book are what meet their wintertime needs. Cold weather needn't keep you indoors, but there are some things to remember when planning a cold weather outing. Here with some tips for staying safe in the cold is Dr. David Nestler. Dr. Nestler is a specialist in emergency medicine at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Nestler. Hello. Thank you for having me. Hey, it is good to have you here, which means that you're not working, and so you probably got to work tonight. So we'll go easy on you. Uh, <laughs> any predictions about this winter? Have you read the Farmer's uh, Almanac this year? I've heard some loose predictions that it may be not as cold as last these, these past couple years, but it could be some more snow than we're used to. And hopefully some rain on the West Coast, huh? Yes. The El Nino it should bring some uh, rain to California, and well, that'd be good. We have yeah. listeners in California, that's so the we're kind, yeah, hoping that's, that's that it the, will rain for them. That's the kind of winter that they want, a nice rainy winter. Well, uh, you were saying before we got started that you've determined that you can divide winter into two extremes or two circumstances. What are they? Right. When you think about problems related to the winter and the cold, I think you could divide them into two categories. 
There are the dangers or problems related to exposure to cold, and then the dangers and problems related to the exertion that we need to uh, put out when we are dealing with snow and cold. The exposure piece, of course, would be things, listen up, Florida, like wind chill right. and uh, frostbite. Exactly. So how do you know when you're getting frostbite? It's hard to know when you're getting frostbite. Uh, certainly the exposure relates to getting caught out in the cold. Uh, these are often uh, circumstances where a car breaks down or you're driving out in uh, some more remote area and you weren't planning on being out as long as you were. The most exposed parts of your body, we always talk about the fingers, the toes, and the nose, are the ones that are more prone to getting frostbite. You'll know because initially it hurts when these parts of your body get cold, but then they actually start to go numb. They can change color, and by that point you are probably dealing with early onset or more progressive frostbite. And, and what's the way to treat that? And when do you know when you ought to come into the emergency room? The only way, to, the first way to treat it is to get out of the exposure, to find yourself in warmth. If somebody were to start realizing that they had been out in the cold too much, say they were out in a more remote area that they weren't intending to be, you need to get inside. The, the next thing to do is to try to warm up the parts of your hand that are cold. If it's your hands, for example, your feet, you need to run them under warm water. We have a number that we shoot for, which is 104 degrees Fahrenheit water. That will stop the damage from the cold. And then if the feeling isn't returning and the color isn't returning to normal within a few minutes, you should probably go to an emergency room. All right, 104. So you don't want the water hot. You want it, that's sort of lukewarm. Isn't right, it? That's right. like a hot tub. Exactly. A hot tub, any hot tub would be 101, 102 degrees. So it's just a little over that, but certainly nothing that can actually turn around and burn the tissue. And wind chill plays into factor there yes. too, because if it's windy and you're outside, you've got less time, correct? Right. Yes. Yes. The wind basically whisks the heat off of your skin and makes the skin get cold faster than just the air temperature itself. Are people with more sensitive skin more likely to have trouble in the wintertime? I mean, like with dryness maybe, or it's not going to make a difference? No, that doesn't seem to factor in. There are people with poor, uh, what we would call poor perfusion, or their fingers may turn blue rather easily with the cold. That's a problem. But dry skin or rashes, probably it's hard to say whether that would really change how fast frostbite would happen. Okay, so if you've got exposure, you've got the uh, frostbite damage, but there's also hypothermia. Right. How do people know when they're starting to experience hypothermia? Well, hypothermia is when you're core body temperature drops. That's a problem. By this point, you are stuck outside. Every part of your body would have told you to go inside by this point. When we see this is car accidents or car breakdowns in places where they just can't seem to get help. That is critical at that point, and that's when you need to call Somehow you need to get a hold of EMS and try to get taken care of. So now there, what do you do? You have a warming blankets, or, or how do you warm someone up with hypothermia? First of all, you take <clears> your, their core temperature, right? Right, right. And find out exactly what it is, and then try to warm them up. And how do you do that? The first thing we do is actually the warming blankets. We have, once the patient reaches the hospital, we have electric warming blankets that encase the whole body to warm them up. Mm. And then if... The situation is even more dire. There are internal warming methods to try to help the person. 
How about a little alcohol? I mean, people think that uh, if you have a hot toddy or uh, a beer or two, that it will uh, actually, they feel warmer. But it's a misconception, isn't it? Yes, it is a misconception. The alcohol will actually make you feel maybe less bothered by the environment. (laughs) And everything else around you. Exactly. (laughs) But it does somewhat cause your blood vessels to dilate or open up which makes it harder for your body to regulate warm and cold parts of the body. Because normally, when we are outside in the cold, we try to keep our central body, the center of our body, warm. Alcohol does play with that, and so, no, it's generally not a great idea. But I was, as I was recalling, that it may do that in, uh, for the central part of your body, but it actually constricts the blood vessels in your, in your fingers and your toes. So, actually, you can get uh, frostbite more easily yes. with a little alcohol on board. Is that right? And See, well, I didn't forget everything. Wow, See, exactly. impressive. And it's that balance between the core and the extremities that get lost. And what it does is you will initially feel feel nice even with the extremities, but at that point your body is starting to give off more heat because it's not able to shunt or move the body away from the uh, the central or very important parts of the body. All right, so we covered exposure. What about exertion? That has to do with shoveling snow and yes. probably nothing else. Is that right? Pretty much, yes. Uh, either shoveling your driveway or I guess you could lump into this when people their car gets stuck or slides into an embankment but the classic that we talk about is this wake up in the morning it snowed overnight you're in a hurry and you have to shovel the snow so you can get out of your driveway this is a very common situation and it's interesting because there are several things that all come together in that scenario that make it very hard on the body the first thing is when we first wake up we actually haven't gotten our blood flow going, haven't gotten our cardiovascular system up to up to par. And this in this scenario that I mentioned, people will just skip breakfast. They'll probably slam a couple cups of coffee because now they've got to get going. And then they go right outside and start exerting themselves very physically. When that happens, it's actually, that's very hard on the heart. So if people do have some underlying heart disease or are prone to that, that is a perfect setup. There's a few more things. The cold weather makes your blood vessels, again, as we were talking about before, it generally makes your blood vessels constrict or clamp down. The caffeine does the same thing. The fact that it's the morning and your body hasn't adapted to being awake does the same thing. And then upper body exertion is much harder on the body than lower body exertion. So when people start lifting heavy piles of snow, particularly older folks who haven't been working out very often. This can all lead to an unfortunate situation where people can have heart attacks from this. And Dr. Nessler, anything else you'd like our listeners to know? The best thing to, ex- to eliminate exposure problems is actually a cell phone, particularly for older folks. If you're going to take a trip to see relatives four towns away, Make sure you have a cell phone that's charged. If you get stuck, the car breaks down, you slide on ice, call for help rather than trying to get yourself out of this jam. 911 in your pocket. Dr. David Nessler, ER physician, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae.
Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.